This is the Unstacked Startups Podcast, where we have real conversations with tech founders, leaders, VCs, and early employees of top technology companies. This is Elon Sachs. Arnold, great to have you on the podcast. Uh, very honored to have you here. Um, Arnold, what's, what's cooking today? Nothing much, but number one, thanks for having me. I really appreciate uh, being invited. I think, uh, you know, we can have some great conversations, but uh, really, I mean, what's cooking today? I mean, AI is cooking today. Everybody knows that. <laughs> AI is absolutely cooking, and I look forward to getting into that with you. That's that's for sure. Um, to our listeners, uh, and for those who don't know Arnold, he's a, he's a pretty cool cat, pretty cool dude. Um, Arnold is a surfer, a DJ, a self-professed armchair economist and an influential figure in the AI landscape. He started his career as a student of the works of Jeffrey Hinton, affectionately known as the godfather of AI. Arnold went on to lead PwC's tech strategy and national consulting practice in Canada and scale of auto labs into Canada's AI powerhouse. He then saw significant scale at Tealbook as the CTO and CIO, and he is currently a mentor and coach and consultant to multiple companies on their AI strategies. Arnold, before diving in a little bit further here and, and kind of setting the agenda, I, I wanted to ask, you know, I'm a small town kid from Ontario. We got no ocean here. I grew up playing hockey. You're a big surf guy. And I understand that you surf 15 feet or larger type waves. I got this impression of you surfing by day, cooking up the craziest AI strategies by night. Is that a fair assessment? Other way around, uh, AI strategies by day, surfing at night. Because when I do surf, it's uh, out in Hawaii. And so it's nighttime here. And so just hanging out in the afternoon doing that. But uh, yeah, no, I, look, I uh, the reason why I got into it and being in Ontario born myself or Toronto born is because my wife liked it. And so in order to, to hook that fish, I needed to learn how to surf. <laughs> that's for sure. That's, that's great. Yeah. It's, um, I feel like I've been on calls with you a few too many times and it's, I don't know, you know, zero degrees Fahrenheit minus, you know, 10, 15 Celsius here in Toronto. And you're telling me, yeah, I'm going for a nice surf, you know, in Honolulu or whatever it is. So, um, Anyways, that's uh, that's great. It, it, in terms of an agenda for this conversation, um, you know, we're going to dive into your AI journey, uh, get your take on AI's future, and talk a little bit about your experience building high-performing teams, and reflect on your leadership experiences in the past. How does that sound at a high level? Perfect. So let's get into awesome. It. Let's uh, let's dive in. As you said, uh, AI is cooking. Certainly a hot topic. You worked under a disciple of Jeffrey Hinton. That must have. I can only assume that you know, in some way, shaped your understanding of AI. Could you share how this initial exposure influences your approach to AI even today? So, I mean, um, because I learned early on what it was in terms of the current techniques that are used, which is neural networks. It essentially made it not magic for me, which was great. 
Um, so I was banging my head for three years trying to understand that stuff. And uh, luckily, some of it soaked in. So um, even what's happening today, uh, like, you know, there was a period of time when I wasn't really uh, into the industry because there was that AI winter for a little while. But as uh, soon as it started um, picking up, and what I mean by that is there was certain seminal, I'd say, moments in time where there was uh, findings or, or breakthroughs in the research that gave it a step change in terms of capabilities. And then also surrounding technologies that help, which is cloud compute, um, things like that, that allowed for the uh, information to be processed and then amount of data available too. Uh, became widely accessible. So those kinds of confluence of factors really drove up the business and the industry and enabled it to really come to what everybody thought it could be. But regardless, the point is, it studied it, AI winter. It's like watching a soap opera. So I basically went to a conference and uh, watched the last episode and got caught all, all caught up. So um, luckily at that point in time, there was not a whole lot to get caught up on. And so the theory and the fundamentals are still all there. Um, What's changed is just the extent of, I would say, the amount of data that these things are getting access to and the scale of these models. Um, you know, my models were like five layers deep. <laughs> and that was already taking a lot of compute time and doing very simple tasks. So I was doing reinforcement learning way back when. Um, now, you know, solving AlphaGo, um, you know, doing all these large language modeling and, and being able to transfer, uh, translate information and then create images and all this other stuff. When you look at the unit of the technology, it's fundamentally the same. And then they just built out slightly different architectures or creative architectures on how to connect those neural networks. Um, and then they just blew out the numbers. Like, you know, they're in the 175, $500 billion, 500 billion ranges now. So way way larger data sets okay. way larger yeah. data sets yeah. yeah yeah so um i'm not gonna pretend i know how those factors those scaling factors um kind of drive how these behaviors are happening now with respect to the new models but at least i understand the fundamental unit and that just at least gives me um an assurance that uh, it's it's you know not magic but that's the big thing so that it's just an input-output machine still. Yeah. 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 It certainly doesn't feel like that when you interact today with generative AI. It definitely, in some ways, it does feel magical. You know what I mean? Well, I'll say it amazes me for sure. Like, I'm not saying that I don't get amazed. I'm like, when I do certain things, I'm like, we've been dreaming about this for a long time. And like, now it works. It's like pretty amazing. Um, but again, coming down to the fundamentals, I'm like, I get it, uh, in terms of, you know, the unit of how this thing is actually working. So kind of cool. Yeah. You know, given these rapid and, you know, monumental evolutional changes to AI, are you surprised by where we are today? Not surprised? I mean... I always thought it was there. Um, what surprises me at this moment in time is the speed, right? Because I mean, ImageNet in 2012, that was pretty cool in terms of being able to now recognize objects reliably. I mean, that was super awesome. Um, and then there was, you know, a few advancements in between now and uh, now and then, but the pace at which um, 
the technology is advancing and how it's being widely, I would say, um, communicated and permeated across society in general, that's what's amazing me right now. Like when ImageNet happened in 2012, I mean, we all in the industry were like amazed, but maybe one little segment on CNN. I don't even know it made it to CNN. But now it's like you turn on CNN and CNBC and I don't know, every other word is AI. <laughs> it is fascinating. It's, uh, you know, it's been crazy to view how quickly this has moved. It seems like every day there's an exponential leap uh, of some sort that's occurring. I think about my two children. I got a son who's almost three and a half years old, a daughter who's 18 months old. I think out 10 years, 15 years into, hey, what is what does their education look like? What is it going to be like when they go to university? You know, what does the workforce look like for them? How do I prepare them for that? And, you know, you and I can go back and forth on different hypotheses and whatever else, but let's stick to, you know, the next two to five years. You know, if you had unlimited resources at your disposal, how would how would you shape the AI industry over the next handful of years? So I would say there's still a lot of um, technical skills that are required to make these systems work effectively. Although, you know, GPT in itself or chat GPT is very much out of the box. Integrating it to within an enterprise workflow and the tool sets still require a lot of traditional engineering um, skills. And so that has got a good... I would say runway for the next little while as a lot of these tools are now going to be better integrated because right now they just sit on its own. You just go to chat.openai.com and do your thing. And it's very much a separate experience. And that's um, has given the evidence that this can uh, be useful, uh, a very useful tool, but to fully integrate it with proper security, um, proper governance around the information and then effective integration with the actual enterprise systems, uh, that is still very much a, a very strong engineering exercise that needs to be done. So I would say in the short term, there's still good runway for great engineers to, to make this happen and to apply this effectively. And then beyond the engineering, there's still change management, there's process change. So from a digital perspective, you know, those types of skill sets, change management and understanding the technology sort of viewpoint on that and how to adopt technology and drive change through technolo technological change, still very relevant. I would say beyond that time frame when it becomes more commonplace where this, these, uh, you know, these technologies are adopted, then I would say it's more critical thinking. And I mean, I look for that today already because in the forecasting of what's going to happen, because that's already still super useful now. But I find um, the ability to understand in depth what it is you're trying to do, break down problems, ask questions effectively, step back, kind of that. So critical thinking is a super important skill. And some universities are already starting to teach it, which I've seen in the form of um, a few ways. And the one I've seen, which I like a lot, is called computational thinking. And so what it does is understand how to break down, I would say, um, tasks, which you need to explicitize, if I may say that word, uh, because we often do activities and things 
implicitly. And so uh, that kind of course and that mindset is important in terms of making everything explicit, codifying it so that then you can understand what's good for, you know, better to apply humans against it or better to apply uh, automated technologies against it. And I think that's how the future of work is going to be designed. So that type of skill set is going to be super important in the next, I would say it's emerging now. Then it'll be like a formal job, like five to 10 years later. I, I heard you mention governance and maybe that's a good segue into, you know, potential dangers of AI, you know, talking about Jeffrey Hinton, who recently left Google, um, he had expressed concerns about potential dangers of AI. And as someone who has closely observed the development of AI, what's what's your perspective on this? There's all there, there's all sorts of optimistic and rosy scenarios to doomsday to something in between. What's what's your take? So I'm going to say something controversial, <laughs> which is you know. Um, guns don't kill people people kill people Sure. so similar it's a tool and right now as the AI stands it actually has no intent right the intent is given the objective is given now prompt through prompting and yeah through, through prompt like you sure. tell it what to do and then it does it now the only question is there are chained kind of mechanisms in there that allow it to then create additional prompts to then instantiate other agents that then do things. So you're trusting the initial interaction with your AI agent to then either do the action itself, interpret what you said to do that effectively, or interpret it and then pass on further instructions downstream to other AI agents that cascade into final action. There is risk that as it's cascading or even the initial AI agent, if it's just a one-step process, could misinterpret what you're saying. That's honestly, I think, incumbent upon us as people to be more understanding of what it is we want. <laughs> and that alone already is a very big, um, I would say, skill in itself. Like, you know, marriage, when you're talking to your partner. Sure. You know? Uh, how do you communicate to each other about what it is you want and what you're feeling and then uh, the outcomes that you're trying to drive. And as a leader in an organization, same thing, you have this um, policy framework that you put in place, sort of the structure of what you think, or you give commands of what you think people will interpret them as. And then they may or may not align with what you think. So again, that comes more of an introspection in my opinion versus something that the AI is responsible for doing. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. There was, it was a uh, recently I was playing around on auto GPT and you talk about the chain, right? And really, I mean, even auto GPT, you put in a, a prompt, kind of an end game in it, but you talk about the chain and you could see how, you know, if prompted with, and you know something that's not so good or that's you know not great it's not so far of a leap to think that the chain could go in the incorrect uh direction but i i I really like your analogy on marriage you know your your input and the way the framework in which you communicate with your partner um 
if it's done in a you know positive and respectful way you you hope to receive that back the one thing i will say is feedback is important so that's one thing i learned um particularly building uh on these new tech on uh, large language models is how do you expose what it is doing a little more um so that uh i you know it is a little bit unfair to um put the full responsibility on the initial user who creates that prompt because we just don't know the outcome yet. So we're trying to create that prompt outcome mapping and we don't know that full mapping yet. And so as we design these systems, I would say it's not that we uh, should stop the progression of this uh, technology. It's more so we should open up the boxes of these things. and Create then safeguards. and un- Safeguards yeah. or, or just let us know what is going on so that we can understand that mapping because we're all about cause and effect. We are cause and effect machines, right? That's what our whole history of survival is about, right? Like we learned cause and effect. So um, in order to do that, especially when it's chained, how do we uh, understand that? And that's a big element of, I would say, design in these systems, right? So, one of the fears or or opportunities, depending on how you look about it, you know, in terms of AI, this is this is probably a good sort of transition here. Is is how AI will affect teams and people, and and I'd like to get your thoughts on building high performance teams. And I'll, I'll just give a little bit of color and context to our audience. Your experiences with scaling teams at Avada Labs. And Tealbook are very impressive. As CTO at Avato Labs, you built and scaled the company to around 100 employees and to 30, 35 plus enterprise clients in just a few years. As the CTO at Tealbook, you scaled the AI engineering and data teams from around 20 to around 70 in under a year. And, and essentially, as I understand it, rebuilt the entire data platform in a little over a year. Could you shed some light on the unique challenges you encountered and strategies you employed in these experiences? So I guess because I'm a trader to a certain extent, like I used to <laughs> do that, I, I can't say I'm good at it, but I understand the techniques. Um, and I would say early on, and you know, number one, it's a matter of context of the economic environment. So I kind of, when I did those two things, the economic environment was up upwards trajectory. So this strategy that I employed there sort of applies to that context. Um, so very much an option-oriented strategy, which is uh, don't bet on one path, number one. So, you know, um, the default path is higher and get on board. But we all know that's slow and that takes some time and that really adds burden to the actual teams building the solution. So um, that's one path I always uh, naturally activate. But the other one I'll do is um, how do you leverage partners like uh, Stacked HR in terms of opening on that funnel, creating a good one to get qualified candidates in. So extending the recruitment team to uh, other people who already have um, sort of an active network out there for the types of talent we're looking for. And then uh, the last channel I would say is also outsourcing, right? So 
how do you selectively use contractors, outsourcers? You know, you know that I'm all about from a talent perspective, looking for what, what I call champion talent. And this is talent that is 800% more productive than your average BNC players. Um, have you seen this in action in your teams? You know, when you think about your standout players, your bar raisers, you know, are they that much more productive than your sort of average? Or you know, what, what are your thoughts? I would say, um, yeah, there's always, I would say, anchor team members. And they anchor in different ways. Some are from a productivity perspective. So naturally, I'm running usually the engineering side of the house. So they can code like they're 10Xers in that sense. Other anchors are talent anchors. So once you get a really solid person in, they can attract a constellation of people, right? So they don't act like an IC in that sense. And that's a very important cog to the whole machine as well. Um, so I have experienced that and I do find that as you're recruiting quickly, um, scaling up fast, um, you know, I naturally think I hired everybody of that caliber, but you know, after two months, you start seeing real, the real deal. And so those people surface. And so that's one other thing I'll say with respect to a strategy of mine, with not only the options, but honestly, I'm already resolved to the fact that I'm going to be wrong 15, 20% of the time. So how do you um, be upfront with that process with yourself, with your team, and then accelerate sort of that um, adjustment, I would say. When you, you know, it may be a, a bit of a direct question here, but what do you look for when selecting team members or making hires? Are there any non-obvious traits you particularly seek out or avoid? I think what I've learned more over time is um, I have my preferences and it's a function actually of my leadership style. So what I can't say is everybody should hire what I hire for, <laughs> right? Because they, whoever you do hire um, should complement that leadership style. Because I know people who are more, um, especially on the engineering side, who definitely um, are about execution in the sense that there's a very strict process of instructions that flow through the organization. And when they come to this organization, um, you know, they take the input, do it, and spit out the output. I'm more of a creative leader and creative thinker and strategic kind of thinker. So naturally, that's the type of talent that I like to hire. And so that's where I gravitate towards because I like to create teams like that, right? So um, ideally, when I work with uh, my executive team, um, that's what they're hiring me for. And so therefore, the team that I hire is reflective of that kind of um, bias, right? And so that's worked. But uh, what I've learned also is I need to be more explicit with my teammates in terms of that's my operating model. Um, therefore, my team will operate like that. So uh, how does that work within the dynamic of the rest of the organization? When, when I think about talent, I sort of think about it within a four-quadrant 
framework. So you have talent as natural ability, mastery, commitment, and fit. So natural ability being there are certain individuals who are gifted in a certain way. In terms of mastery, you know, there are individuals who have to make it. You know, they're not necessarily born with it. Talent as commitment being perseverance, focus, dedication to be the best. And then you have fit, which is kind of more contextual, which is a little bit what you were talking about there. You know, you have individuals who shine in one context who might struggle in another. What's, you know, and different organizations have different cultures. They have different leaders with different leadership and management styles. Um, you know, I, I think there's champions or elite talent out there who maybe have blends of these different things. What's your thoughts on this? What's your perspective? I gravitate towards fit because I think lots of things are contextual again. Um, again, this is just learnings from almost really my last two places. It's, it's what is the dynamic of that leadership team? And therefore you need to hire people that fit that dynamic because they're going to set the culture, right? Culture is honestly, I trivialize that term, you know, culture, each strategy, culture, each strategy. Cause I was a strategy guy and I'm like always doing strategy. And then now I understand, yes, culture can eat strategy very easily. Um, so I think fit is, is something I gravitate towards, but again, that's very nebulous. So what does it exactly mean? So somebody just as a chameleon and sort of, you know, aligned to whatever the leadership is driving in terms of that culture. But the one thing I can say, and I've learned many times is commitment is a big sort of spike that I find is a critical success factor. Um, you know, is what we do hard uh, or intellectually, um, I would say, difficult in the sense that only a small percentage of people can do it. I don't honestly believe that, right? I think every a lot of people of in a in a large portion of the percentile range, right? I would say maybe let's just stay at the top half of you know can excel if they have a very strong commitment, right? That's what I truly believe, right? Because I think um, it's all about getting up time and time again because you're going to fail and believing that you can get to the end game if you um, know, you know, or just continually, you know, um, hacking away at it, but doing it in a smart sense, like you got to learn. So if you're learning from each iteration, then I think uh, you know that that whole perseverance is very very critical. Yeah, you, you you certainly see it all, right? When you're working with large large teams and scaling and moving quickly, and and that's in some ways the the beauty of it, and maybe a you know a fair transition into a a little bit of a separate question for you. You know, when you think about and you've worked at startups before you've worked at larger enterprises when you think about earlier stage startups what advice would you have for early stage founders tech founders embarking on their entrepreneurial journey the biggest one have a co-founder 
That's like one of the biggest things I've learned right now. Can't do it alone. And I've actually talked to many who um, more so, uh, I oh, actually most of the, the ones that are doing well is the ones I know who have a co-founder. And there's a reason for that, I think, having been working with both, is that uh, those without a co-founder don't have a trusted party or a trusted person that will tell them the truth. Well, let's just say a trusted channel from which the truth will be accepted. That's probably the best way to put it. Because a lot of people will tell you the truth. It's just whether you'll actually fully internalize it. I think of... I think of entrepreneurship as a long, you know, not to be sort of, you know, downer here, but a long and lonely path. That said, it can be the most rewarding work in the world. Um, and I think early stage founders with a focus on their customer and almost an obsession with their customer and on their people and on their founding team um, that's kind of, that's kind of where my head goes here. Yeah, man. Like imagine you're in that forest and you have no idea where out is and it's dark. If you have somebody beside you, it's a lot easier being in that forest. I couldn't agree more. I mean, an early stage startup, you need, you need an amazing team. I mean, really at the end of the day, that's, that's all that matters. That's one of the, if not the most important indicator of, the success of that startup that, you know, probably has some sort of massive vision and they're going to need the best people um, that are going to debate and come out with, you know, great ways to move forward. Actually, actually I'd say you need the best team. You don't need the best people. Like it's how the those people work together. But one thing I'll say about AI moving forward too, it just actually, what it does is force us to work better together as people. That's really it. So like we have to learn how to understand each other more. That's what it's going to force on society. I'm hoping, and hopefully, that's a, a positive change and force to this whole transformation. Let's uh, let's hope so. Thank you for listening to the Unstacked Startups podcast. If you enjoyed this, you might enjoy our free monthly newsletter by Unstacked Startups called Founder Mail. Sign up for free at foundermail.substack.com. This is Elon Sachs.